at times is becoming farcical. You have to really feel for these players and management. This isn't normal in any shape or form. This is not a Lions tour as we know For it. the best Lions coverage this summer, subscribe to the OTB Rugby podcast stream on the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. You're welcome back. It is time for the Sunday Sports Pages. If you're getting us on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, you're very welcome along. Let's have a look at the back pages this morning. The Sunday Times leads with the win for Kilkenny in the Leinster final yesterday. A photograph there of Adrian Mullen lifting the trophy yesterday, the Bob O'Keefe Cup, after beating Dublin relatively handily in the end. Uh, it must be said, no real problems coming down the home stretch. 125 to 19 points was the full-time score there. Dublin, obviously, with a few COVID issues in the lead-up to that game, undoubtedly made it a little bit easier for Kenny in the end. That is the lead story on the back of the Irish Mail on Sunday as well. Classy Cats is the headline. Kilkenny too strong for virus hit dubs as Cody tastes Leinster glory once again. Meanwhile, Olympics hit with COVID cases as IOC feel the heat. This is a piece by Sam Lovett in the Irish Mail on Sunday. Tokyo Olympics organisers reporting the first case of COVID-19 at the Athletes' Village, along with 15 other new cases connected to the Games that begin next week. So uh, a worrying sign. 11,000 competitors are going to be staying in the Athletes' Village. So uh, the stakes are pretty high that they managed to weed that out and everything is in order ahead of the next couple of days. The Sunday Mirror then leads with Cat That Got The Dream. It is a picture there once again of Adrian Mullen lifting the Bob O'Keefe Cup. The main story from the hurling yesterday though is Fitz Fury, as they put it on the back of the Mirror. Model boss speaks of toughest year of his life. Davy reveals ongoing abuse to him and family. Meanwhile, Farney tribute to under-20 Starlet and emotional Seamus McEnany paying tribute to Brendan Oak Duffy who tragically died in a car crash the day before that win for Monaghan yesterday over our man Seamus McEnany uh, would have had Brendan Oak Duffy in his minor team. He would have been a captain for him in his minor team. So uh, a desperately sad day for everyone uh, in Monaghan yesterday. 4.17 to 2.21 was the full-time score in that game. Uh, hacked off Rory. Mac just wants to go home, but Larry puts up strong defences. Their headline on the golf. The Irish Sun goes with the headline, Desire. He cuts short Halls to fight Henderson for number one jersey. That is David De Gea, who is back in Manchester United training earlier than they expected. There's also an exclusive on the back there. Lewandowski is the headline. Chelsea will swoop to prize Robert Lewandowski away from Bayern Munich in a £50 million deal, they report. The back of the Sunday world leads with transfer news as well. United get their main Varane. Real Madrid star seals £50 million Old Trafford move. The star Sunday then goes with that Manchester United story as well. Getting into Haya. David's back in training. And also, United have been offered Vinicius as Real Madrid look to clear the decks and try and fund a Kylian Mbappe move. And then finally, the Sunday Independent goes with the hurling. And the two big stories on the front of the Sunday Independent sports section. Cats cruise home. Kilkenny win title number 73. And Fitzgerald fires back following summer exit. So those are the back pages. Kleena Foley, sports writer and host of the Off The Bench podcast is with us. Good afternoon, Kleena. Hi, Owen. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. And George Hamilton is also with us, football commentator and host of the Hamilton Scores. George, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. How are you? Yeah, all good. We might get into some of the football stories in, in just a moment because there's a wealth of good writing 
on the fallout of England's defeat to Italy last weekend. But, Clean, I just want to get your take quickly on the Davy Fitzgerald quotes from yesterday. Fitzgerald firing back following summer exit. One of these classic post-match interviews after a manager has got dumped out of the championship, I think it's fair to say. He says that he's experienced the toughest year that he's ever experienced in the GEA. The way myself and my family have been treated is an absolute and utter disgrace the way I felt all week. I didn't even know if I wanted to come into this game to tell you the truth. So he's gone to bat for his dad. He's gone. He's made no bones of that, that he's gone to bat for his father, who, of course, is Claire's secretary. He's been under a lot of focus himself, a lot of criticism himself over the last little while. And he says that it's just not good enough, the, the criticism him and his family have got. And then there was also an olive branch extended to, to Brian Lohan. But but first of all, the, the defence there of his, of his father, Kleena, it was... Pretty extraordinary stuff on a subject he's tried to stay quiet about during the season. Yes, but he but he has talked about it before, and it's a very unusual position where you have first of all an intercounty manager. His father is uh, a, a county uh, secretary, but also uh, in this case he's managing Wexford, not Clare, and they're playing Clare. So um, it was a classic piece of uh, Davy Fitz after a match in that he's a very emotional man, and I often wonder how that squares with, you know, with where he is. Um, but, uh, you know, we, I think we all agree, look at the stuff that goes on and the sort of social media stuff that has gone on around Clare this year and the whole, you know, the internal stuff that's been happening in that county is, you know, just abysmal, apparently. Um, but I think there comes a time as well where you just turn off your social media and you don't read it and you don't listen to it. You know, I think you can't, like, the more he says this, I think it almost fires those people on social media and they do more of it, you know, and I think that's the thing with social media. It's, it's a beast. And if you react to it, then you bring, they nearly, you know, pile on even more. So sometimes I think it might just be advisable just to stop talking about it and, and just ignore it. And that might be the way to handle it. But I do think on the other hand with David, there's also always an element as well of just, he just does something that is so David Fitzgerald and the line on, on Brian Lohan, you know, was it just cracked me up because he says, obviously, I'd say what happened was uh, he wasn't, I saw the TV interviews afterwards and they were all about the match, but obviously somebody afterwards asked him about his relationship with Lohan and he said, oh, if somebody set us up a meeting tomorrow, we, you know, I'd, I'd be there 110%, Davy always gives 110%, um, I'd do it. But then he said, I might like Ryan Lohan. I mightn't have much time for him. And the way he does stuff, he did the same for me. But we shouldn't be at each other in Clare. So suddenly it swings all the way back to Clare again. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, there's always kind of, with Davy, some of it makes sense. And to me, some of it just doesn't make sense. At that. Will he stay on for another year, Cleaner, do you think? I don't, I don't think so, no. And I'd say, I would say, uh, like uh, my understanding was that this would be his last year. Um, he left it open, I'd say, yesterday. But I don't think he will, no, no. He was with us on the show a few months ago and said that it's not going to be his last dance. That was before the season and I'm sure losing to Clare once again in a knockout game will make you think yeah. twice. He, he didn't confirm he was going to be staying on either, I must say. No. But, um, and also, it might not be his last dance. It might be his last dance with Wexford, but where will he turn up next? That's always the, that's always the intrigue with Davy as well. well that's, that is the big question. Uh, we want to move on to England and get stuck into this because this has been... Probably the big sports story of the week. It's spilled way beyond sport. It's a it's a real topic of conversation in, in British society and Irish society over the last week or so. There are no rules for the mob, is what you read. If you turn that Sunday in the independent sports section the other way around, go to the back page, Tommy Conlon uh, on the back page this week. Uh, George, what was your experience of, of the mob last uh, last Sunday before we get into this? It, it, it was awful. Um, I was at Wembley for the two semi-finals and the final. Uh, I stayed on a Wembley Way in a hotel on Wembley Way for the two semis on the Tuesday and the Wednesday. 
And at 2.30 in the afternoon, it was very civilised. There were people about and uh, it was just uh, building up to a football match. England, of course, played in the second semi-final. But there was nothing to suggest that things were going to be in any way different when the final came around. But then uh, I flew into London on Sunday morning and I went to a different hotel, not quite on Wembley Way. And thankfully, it wasn't on Wembley Way because one of my commitments, one of my first commitments, was to get myself up to uh, the bridge by the Wembley Park tube station to do a piece for the 6-1 News on RTE. And I was standing there with the cameramen in a little corral surrounded by people, no social distancing. They were all looking down behind me onto Wembley Way, which was absolutely jam-packed with people. They suggested there were a quarter of a million people down there. It's the road that leads from the station to Wembley. And on FA Cup final day in the old days, they used to show the crowds making their way up there. It was jam-packed from about four in the afternoon. And not only that, but they were all either drunk or high because it was just that kind of day. Now, the other thing about Wemby is it was rebuilt and reopened in 2007 as a destination. So they put in hotels, shops, apartments right up to the doors of Wembley Stadium. So there's no way of constructing a ring of steel like you'd see it somewhere like Munich's Allianz Arena or the Stade de France in Paris. So what you have is crowds right up to the door. And not only that, but there's no alcohol ban. So you find the little supermarket, the Tesco Express, selling slabs of beer to whoever wants them. And they're carrying out these trays of 24 cans onto the street and consuming them. Uh, I didn't see it, but I'm told there was, there was a, a lot of uh, cocaine use involved as well. And uh, all I can say is that the people that I was closest to on my way into Wembley, trying to stay I was away from them as I could, what would happen is there'd be a crowd of them, and then one of them would start a chant, and then they'd all join in. And the look of their faces, they weren't seeing you, they weren't seeing anything. They were just a mob. And Tommy Conlon's piece in the Sunday mm. Independent is absolutely terrific on this. It, it really is a superb piece of, of feature writing by Tommy Condon because it grasps, and the photograph that accompanies it at the top, grasps exactly what happened at Wembley last Sunday. Uh, they really did, uh, as somebody said to me, police it as any old international, not an international with England in it. And the fact that it was a final and the fact that they'd been whipped up into this fury it was just awful uh, a terrible terrible situation that could have been so much worse because it was out of control what, what time did you have to get into the stadium i presume you would have gone in quite early so you might have missed the the, the, the really grim scenes before the game george well uh the, the fortunate thing was uh that because uh, we were staying just off wembley way and we had our accreditation it was ronnie whelan and myself just the two of us and um, we, we knew because we'd been before where our gate so we were able to get to the gate through closed off roads because we were accredited and we saw none of what was happening at that stage and you said when did we get in about six o'clock two hours before the game we did see though at one of the gates near where we were stationed and uh, there was a scuffle going on I, I, we weren't aware of the real trouble outside just that there was a large mob outside uh, but we did see a little scuffle but that was all but then, you know, in the stadium itself, the concourses, the bars were open, the floor was sticky with beer, spilt beer. It, it was most unpleasant, uh, just not the kind of place that you'd want to be. And, and it was so unsavoury for what should have been a glorious occasion. Was there a sense that you were seeing people coming in and around the commentary area that weren't supposed to be there? Did, did, that, did, I, did that impact on your work? Because other media no, professionals no, it, said no. No. Uh, it, it, may have, it may have happened elsewhere, but where, where Ronnie and I were, uh, was was a, in a at the back row of what is not a very good comedy position when you when you realise that this stadium is only what fourteen years old, the press box and the comedy areas are on opposite sides of the stadium and they're at the very back of a lower tier. So the upper tier comes down in front of you and it's almost like looking at a football match through a letterbox because it's not best of views. Uh, but 
as far as the social distancing and the security were concerned, we were fine because Ronnie was in one commentary box, there was perspex all around him, and I was in the next door one, and there was perspex all around us. And and we had to bring our own microphones and headphones because that they weren't obviously sharing the equipment as well, and the place was all sanitized. And the, as for security, we were at the very back. So if anybody was going to get in, they were, it was going to take an awful lot for them to get anywhere near us. And I have to say, hand on heart, we didn't see anything unsavory once we were in our commentary seats. So the thrust of Tommy Conlon's piece is about the idea that scenes like this were supposed to have been frozen out and fossilised sometime in the late 20th century. He says, in Britain, the stadium tragedies of the 1980s were supposed to have been the final death rattles of that urban sub-tribe with its subhuman violence. And it found itself in an evolutionary cul-de-sac, he says, doomed to extinction by the civilising vaccines of affluence, consumerism and education. A, a real backward step, a real opportunity missed for England, Kina, is what Tommy Conlon is saying today. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant piece, as George says. And uh, there's a, in, before the last paragraph, he has, he has a line that just captures it all so well. And he says, the new England was on the pitch, Sterling, Rashford, Henderson at all. The old England was at the gates and storming the barricades. It's just such a brilliant line because it absolutely captures it. And, and I was struck all the way through Europe. And I don't know whether George notices this because he's there you know, all the time with them. But I've often been struck, like, first of all, by just the aggression in English fans. I don't understand it, but um, the booing, the constant booing throughout Europe, not, you know, the Germany, every, not just the anthems, but through the games. I just don't, it's so unsporting. But I'm often struck by the fact that if you look at the English fans at international games, there seem to be almost all male. The percentage of women in their crowd is very small. Whereas if you watch most other European countries, it's not that way biased. Am I wrong in thinking that? And I just wondered, is that an effect? Because even in, in English, in premiership games, it's it's much more mixed. Um, but I just noticed that in, in international games, it seems to be virtually, I would say, you know, 95% male. Was that I, think, some... I think also there's, there's a part of it that's, sorry, it's, I, I was just going to make the point, I think it's also partly to do with the fact that uh, the, the matches are all played in London, basically, uh, at Wembley, and um, and it's a different demographic. And I think the situation, you know, London, angry city, uh, that that kind of element in, in society that's there. Uh, and and it's, it, it just comes to the fore again when, when a, a big match like that is played at Wembley. I agree wholeheartedly with Tina's point. There was a wonderful piece in the Economist newspaper uh, by, by a Danish, uh, not a Danish, an American guy who's married to a Danish lady, an American journalist, and he told the tale of their return journey home to South London on the tube and the bus and how they were accosted and uh, really disrespected as football fans by angry people, not at the match, just on the streets and, and in the bus. When they were on the bus, the bus got stuck in a crowd of people on a crowded street and they've all been watching the match in the pub and they started banging on the windows when they saw the Danish colours. And his wife was there, who is a Danish lady, and their little boy, and he, he was making that point that, you know, this is no place for women because it's, it's thuggery. Yeah, and it just seems to be unique to that English team and, and just English English international football, not to this team, but just that the following tends to be very male and very aggressive. It's frightening when you look at it. Um, Tommy quotes, uh, you know, he, he goes, he looks back, if you like, at that awful history of football hooliganism. So he talks about those two great books, um, Bill Bulford's one, the one Among the Thugs, um, where he embedded himself basically um, back in the 1990s with, with football hooligans in England. And then the other great book, of course, it's recommended to anybody, is one 
was one of the great books that I started me interested in sports journalism, which is Hunter Davis' book, uh, The Glory Game. And he talks about, you know, th that aggression and that football hooliganism then. But he's comparing those people, if you like, with with the modern English fan and um, the notion that, the, the you know, the guy, the guy, the, the guy who had the, shall we say, the rockets uh, <laughs> in an appropriate place. Um, was wearing a Louis Vuitton bucket hat that cost mm. 545 pounds, you know, and that, you know, there, it's a different, it's just, a, it's a different demographic now as well. And also obviously the fact that not only do you have alcohol, but as George says, now you have very, very cheap drugs, you know, um, which, you know, you can take easy and, and it can't be seen. I was just amazed as well. I don't know whether George knows, like the lack of security um, or the inability of the private security firm to deal with it. Like we could see the fans charging in, trying to get the ones without the tickets. And all I could think of was, if anybody looked at it, like the, the, the report into the Ariana Grande one, uh, that awful tragedy in Manchester, where the security people, you know, just just neglected their jobs or simply weren't able for what was going on. And I just don't understand why the English police um, weren't more involved in the whole situation. Mm. I think if you think of a game being a, a, at uh, the Aviva Stadium or, or at Croke Park, uh, you won't get anywhere near as close to the stadium without a ticket as those people Absolutely. were able to do at Wembley. Yeah. It's it's perfect. It's much the, the policing of the event is so much more thought through, uh, for want of a better expression. And I was I was shocked. Uh, it it reminded me of of old days when things were bad. When we used to do Premier League matches on RT on a Saturday afternoon and we'd be over there and you'd see crowds that were apparently out of control. Not every week, but but just the the, the bigger venues. And it took me right back to there. And I, it was almost with a sense of disbelief that I was looking at what I was seeing. This, this cannot be. And in the middle of a pandemic, where they, I, I began that piece for the 6-1 News by saying, Boris Johnson says July the 19th is, is going to be Freedom Day, but it's come eight days early. But look at this. Mm -hmm. So many people, you couldn't possibly estimate how many there were. It, it, it was appalling. Are you noticing a cultural difference in the people that you would have seen around the grounds in the 80s, the, the, the Premier League games or the football games, the Division 1 games you would have been covering uh, and the early Premier League games as opposed to the people you witnessed around Wembley causing harm to other people? Uh, it's it's hard to be certain about that because mm. aside from the Louis Vuitton hat, yeah. they, they are, uh, I, I would have thought, more or less the same people because they, they, they run around and their shirts off and and they're 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 into the beard before they're into the football, and it and that's what the problem is. And you know, and I I was also reminded of of Italian ninety, the World Cup, and, and again I would hold the British uh, the English authorities responsible for this. At Italian ninety, there was an alcohol ban at match venues on match days. Now we were based in Milan, and on a day that Milan didn't have a match, but there was one in Rome, say Milan was dry, and so was uh, Sardinia. And so was Sicily. All the venues were dry on match day, whether there was a match on or not. Why was Wembley and the environs not dry? Why was Tesco allowed to sell all that beer and all the other places around allowed to sell all the beer? Why? It, it's obvious that when people get drunk, they misbehave. And, and they allowed this to happen. Yeah, it would, it would have been uh, no crack Boris instead of... Uh... I don't know if the bars the savior for a lot of those people though, and it would have all it would have all yeah. gone back to the top. You can, I don't know, it it, it is it, it, like you you kind of like picture the wreckage of this kind of in what's been written today, and of course the scenes we saw over the last couple of days, mm. and it just paints a very very grim picture. The Sunday papers on off the ball. You're welcome back. A lot of drama in the GEA already this afternoon. Donegal 
are eight points apiece with Tyrone at the moment in Brewster Park in their Ulster Senior Football Championship semi-final. Michael Murphy, who of course hadn't been fully fit all season, did start the game. He ended up missing a penalty. He hit the post and ended up going wide. And after that, he ended up getting sent off a black card and a yellow card. So a disaster for Donegal on the Michael Murphy front. But they're holding their own. It's still eight points apiece. In Leinster, it is Kildare eight points. Westmead, six points. And in the minor... All-Ireland of 2020, not this year's one, last year's one, Derry have beaten Kerry on a scoreline of 2-12 to 114. Kerry thought they had won it with a late goal, but Derry scored an even later goal from a penalty to beat them right at the death. So incredible scenes in a lot of the different grounds there at the moment, and we will keep you up to speed on everything that's happening. Cleena Foley and George Hamilton are with us reviewing the Sunday sports pages. We've been talking about England and... I guess, George, we want to just touch one final point here, and it's Shane McGrath's piece in the Mail on Sunday. His headline is Euro Show Folly of Toxic World Cup Bid. I just want to read out the first couple of paragraphs here. Uh, there was never a good sporting reason for Ireland being part of a joint bid with the UK to host the 2030 World Cup. This was a political stunt driven by the British government as part of their drive to become more influential as a global player in the aftermath of Brexit. Uh, where do you stand on the 2030 World Cup bid after the scenes you witnessed last weekend? I wouldn't have anything to do with it, to be quite honest, because uh, anything that to do with an, an English uh, bid for a, a major event is going to be tainted by what happened last weekend. It was something that should never have happened. It was supposed to be a celebration of football. It turned into uh, mob violence. It was just... It, 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 I think it showed that uh, unless they have a radical rethink uh, they're not actually in a position to host uh, a major event like this because they let it get so out of control. Uh, it, and everything else that, that's around it, that, that piece by Shane McGraw was excellent too. But at the bottom of the page, the same page, there's another one about social media, which you were touching on, uh, and uh, Kena was touching on about Davy Fitzgerald a little earlier. Uh, but Shane McGrath's headline reads, Racists have little to fear from online platforms. It's because there is there is no at all about who is online uh, no requirement to identify yourself. Uh, no, no means of knowing where the the hate te- texts come from. Uh, and and it's a very powerful piece that Shane says that it's now clear that the four-day blackout of social media by Premier League clubs in April has had no effect at all. And, that, and that's a fact. That's a fact. It's a it's a peculiar thing that ha- is happening in England. Of course, the, racism isn't confined to England, but it shows its nastiest side for sure uh, in and around uh, the events like last Sunday and the European Championship final, the England team. That's for sure, and and it is a it is a good point made. Like I'd almost kind of forgotten about the social media blackout in April, mm. and I, I guess it's what are the, the the meaningful changes that are going to happen over the next little while to to actually spark change. And and in many ways, these things are the exact same story, George. I mean, like mm-hmm. it, it, you you kind of hope that with every passing year a more maybe progressive society emerges and maybe a better society emerges and it kind of ties into what Tommy Conlon was pointing out about the English hooligans last week it was harking back to the 1980s a time that we thought we'd left behind when it came to football fandom well if you if you cast your mind back um, you're probably too young Uh, 26 years uh, 1995 Lansdowne Road Republic Mm -hmm. of Ireland against England and the fans tore up the the stand the English fans tore up the stand and tossed the uh, the wooden seats over the heads of those in front of them onto the pitch. Uh, they were there then. Uh, they're still around those people. Uh, the, the brilliant line in Tommy, if I can go back to Tommy Conlon, mm. he says the Louis Vuitton hat might have been in a contemporary twist, but the bloke wearing it was as old as Shakespeare, as old as Chaucer. He and his merry band of men were merely following in the long shadow of the vulgarity that came before them. And there you are. That's summed up. 
Uh, just final word on, on this story then, George. The, the, the 2030 World Cup in many ways kind of almost seemed as a, as a way to make it up to maybe Irish people who hadn't got to a tournament on home soil this summer. From you personally, I presume that this was something you were greatly looking forward to, commentating on games for, for RTE in front of home supporters, the tournament in Ireland, that would have been an incredible moment for you. And I'm Indeed. sure there was, there was, yeah, and I'm sure there was a part of part of you that was looking forward to that in, in 2030 as well. Indeed. Uh, and and it, it would have been great, even, as you say, that there was there were, were to be games in Dublin in this tournament and, and COVID prevented that. It, it it would have been absolutely fabulous. I mean, I was at the uh, Europa League final, was it 2010, when uh, the two Portuguese teams played uh, the first big game at the Aviva. It's a terrific place for an international event even you know if Ireland aren't involved in it. It's a wonderful stadium. Uh, the, the fans give it a wonderful atmosphere and there's never any trouble, which is a wonderful thing about it too. So yes, I would have been really looking forward to the opportunity uh, to, do, to do that. But I, I wouldn't put that above uh, the common good. Uh, and I don't see any good at all. I, I'm with Shane McGrady in the Mail on Sunday. I don't see any anything positive at all about trying to ally uh, ourselves with uh, an English bid for the World Cup. And as he rightly points out, you know, England, uh, Boris Johnson has cloaked himself with the other United Kingdom nations and Ireland mm. uh, to try and give himself cover uh, for something that for England alone would not be good. Yeah, Ireland has certainly been given a, a pretty good exit strategy after the results or the events, I should say, of, of last weekend. Mm. Um, the Olympic Games, George, I think we should we should touch on because there is a heap of brilliant sports writing ahead of Tokyo mm. 2020 getting underway on Friday. Uh, I, well, what's your own agenda for, for Tokyo? I presume you've got a, a few events at hand. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, doing the uh, track and field second week and I'm doing the rowing first week. So that's Brilliant. that's my Olympics taking care of. Well, you're going to hopefully have late, a, a... Late bit nights of, and early mornings. <laughs> a, a few Irish medals, I'm sure, on, on that first week then. Yeah, you're well, hoping for. the rowing. I mean, I've, I've, I've been covering uh, rowing for RTE for the last number of years and I've seen some terrific performances and I've seen the gold medals uh, being, I won't say hung around the necks because the present circuit circumstances that's not happening but Sunita Puspur you know uh, going in there again uh, to, to bring glory to her and indeed standard wonderful one of what she's been able to achieve and how she ever came to be a rower and then there are so many other rowing stories all seemingly central in that little corner of Cork it's it's just a, a great human interest story as well as everything else and as you say it's, it's brilliantly covered and today's Dennis Walsh is the piece on the, on the rowing for gold Ireland has a number of superb prospects in the boat who could bring medals home. So, I mean, I think we're looking at a very healthy first week uh, on the water anyway, and who knows where else, but I've been concentrating on those two uh, areas, basically, in my prep, because that's what I've been involved in. It's remarkable, really, when, when you go through the Stennis Walsh piece. He says, since Paul O'Donovan and his brother Gary stood on the podium in Rio, Irish boats have won 21 medals at World and European Championships, mm. a dozen of them gold. In this Olympic cycle, rowing has commanded the position that boxing occupied before the London Games, expecting medals, carrying the standard, driving it. He's bang on on what he says there. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, there's a lovely little graphic beside a photograph of the boys in the boat of Donovan and McCarthy. And the graphic shows the medals. You know, if you go onto Wikipedia and you look up an athlete, and, and on the right-hand side, it'll show the medals in gold, silver and bronze that mm -hmm. they've won at the various championships. So the Sunday Times has done something very similar with, with the, the Irish medals. And in graphic illustrated form, it's what you've just said. You won in European championships. And it's astonishing, all the medals that they've won. Uh, and it's a very good point that's made that that seems to be our our number one go-to medal hope sport for these games. Absolutely. And we'll have the voice of George Hamilton to, to enjoy all those medals as well over the course of the next few weeks. And I can see Kleena Foley is back with us. How are you, Kleena? 
I'm fine. I think my computer blew up. With peace. Did you ever think we'd have we'd say that in this country? Well, uh, we, we were just uh, looking ahead to, to, to the biggest couple of weeks of sports. So I, I hope your computer is holding up in time for all the Olympics work. <laughs> I think I might have to get a new one on. <laughs> <laughs> We've just been talking about the rowing cleaner, about the, this incredible team yeah. that Ireland are, are sending to Tokyo, that they have sent to Tokyo. Uh, six boats and 13 athletes is the biggest rowing team Ireland has ever qualified for the Olympics. Nine of the athletes, says Dennis Walsh, uh, are women, a number which needs some context. Before Francis Crine in 1980, no Irish woman had competed in rowing at the Olympics and until Sunita in 2012, Crine did not have a successor in Rio. There were three. So this is a massive story on so many different levels, Kina. And yeah, and it's brilliant that you mentioned Francis Crine, who's from Carrick and Shannon in Leitrim. Um, if anybody wants to go into the off bench, we did a, a podcast with her and her story is incredible. And she qualified for the subsequent um Olympics the next year, uh, the next time it came around, but because they weren't sending any men, she wasn't sent. Her story is, I'm not joking, she has the most incredible story uh, to tell about her Olympic experience. Um, and actually, they kitted her out. She went up and she got her uniform, and um, and then she found out she wasn't going. It's an unbelievable story. And um, family have a, um, a hotel in, in, in the middle of Carrick and Shannon, and uh, she's still very involved and incredible. She's a fantastic woman. She has gone to all the world championships and Euro championships and she follows these these female rowers and the whole rowing team um, avidly and she's just in awe of what they've done. Um, but it is incredible because George will probably remember as well, the only rower in London 2012, that's that's how near it was, was Sunita Kuspora, you know, mm. and uh, so that's how much work has been done. And obviously, Dominic Casey is incredible coach and uh, obviously... Uh, I can't pronounce his name very well, but the Italian, the head, the head of high performance. And this is a really good piece because it shows that when he came in, there were problems and that the rowers couldn't quite gel with him. Um, but things got sorted out. And But really importantly, the athletes themselves stepped in and, and spoke up and said, look, there are things here we're not happy with. How are we going to solve it? Um, but Dominic Casey is is definitely, you know, Skibbereen has such involvement in this. Um, West Cork actually has provided quite a few athletes to the Olympic team, not just in rowing. But his daughter is also has also qualified as well, so it's really unusual. And, and uh, I haven't seen for a while that we have um, a father and a daughter on the Irish team, uh, which is amazing. But they look, they're world class. They exactly what you're saying. They are our, they are the elite now. They are a boxer. They're the ones with the heaviest expectations of medals on them, and should win at least two. Mm. And they, they really point out the level of depth in the squad almost it's kind of like almost looking at the Dublin football team some of the, the people who aren't actually yes. going to get the, the, the level of opportunities like obviously Gary's the, the obvious one having to, to race for a seat and uh, Fintan McCarthy taking that seat ahead of him and then uh, Lydia yeah. Heafy as well uh, meddling at World Cups but she can't get into the double Yeah I know and they they played around a lot with the, the, the women's double and the women's four and the women's four is back into the Olympic programme this time so it's a new event if you like back in it was there before but they have swapped places, moved in and out. They've done all kinds of things to get their best permutations there. And somebody was always going to lose out. And in fact, there's probably three women who've been involved in this whole squad. But they, they train together. And, and he, he says it down here, because I, I don't know whether George has ever been in it, but like where they train down in, in, in Ascara, like the, the gym downstairs, you know, it's the most basic thing you can see with bikes and Eric's in it. But they've had to make it bigger. They've had to give them more space to train in. But it's very, very basic. Um, and it's just, it's. I think it's just such a tough sport. It's like cycling where, you know, but you never have any hope of being becoming a professional. So they're all combining careers and rowing. But a lot of them, of course, probably in the last year, certainly have been full time. 
Um, but it is amazing to see it. And, and, you know, when you think back to Sean Dre, who just missed a medal from Carlo, I think his fourth, was his fourth, George. Um, it's, 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 it is, there's, there's something Irish about it. You know, it's a bit like the boxing about, about that hardness, you know, and, and just that ability to dig in. There's absolutely no clamor in it whatsoever. I mean, 2000 meters down, it's like, I always liken it to, it seems to me like an 800 meter uh, run where, you know, the last quarter of it, your body is absolutely in torture. Mm. No, absolutely. It, it is an, an utterly brutal sport. Um, there's one of your colleagues as well that's uh, been speaking in the Irish Mail on Sunday, George. Uh, there's a piece with Timmy McCarthy here looking ahead to the Sarah. Olympics. Uh, basketball yeah. is an entertaining and exciting game. The commentary should be too. Timmy McCarthy, I'm not going to lie, is one of my favourite moments every four years is when this guy is commentating, especially <laughs> on, on the USA basketball team. His enthusiasm is just unparalleled. He tells the story here as well in this great interview with Mark Gallagher on page 66 of the Irish Mail on Sunday of his, of his health troubles over the, the last few years, an aggressive form of prostate cancer uh, he had over, over the last little while. Uh, he had his final round of radiotherapy on November 2018 and completed hormone treatment late last year. Having turned 60 in 2020, McCarthy is feeling good, says, says Mark Gallagher, and, and a really kind of positive tint to, to, to what was a, a, a really, uh, really awful story to see here, which I wasn't overly aware of, George. Yeah, I know. It, 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 it's uh, Mark t- 10, the, the last time I was on with you, uh, Mark was, uh, had, had written a piece that was highly commended as well. He gets great stories out, and I, I wasn't aware of a lot of what I read in there. Uh, and I wasn't, I wasn't aware of the, the problems that there had been for Timmy. Uh, he is uh, a terrific guy, uh, and the, the story is, is very, very well told by Mark. Uh, and it's, it, it, it is one of the good news stories of the, uh, these, Olymp- these difficult Olympic Games. I thought, you, I thought when you said there was one of my colleagues in the Mail on Sunday, you were going to mention Dara Maloney, who features with the Irish women competitors uh, in the cover story in the Irish Mail on Sunday's magazine. Ah. He's the only man among them, <laughs> amongst women. <laughs> well, why, why haven't so you got to call speak. up to the, to but, the Irish uh, Mail on Sunday today? Because they don't see me. <laughs> I'm the voice. He's the one who's in front. <laughs> I have developed. I have developed over the years out of face for radio. <laughs> so th- t- tell me, George, what what makes Timmy McCarthy such a good commentator? What what do you like about him as a as a commentator here, speaking as an expert? It's it's his it's his enthusiasm. Uh, well, number one, he knows what he's talking about mm. for sure. And number two, it's it's the enthusiasm that he brings to it, and it's it's. I was thinking of Eugene, uh, my co-commentator in the in the rowing. Uh, you know, they, they've been there, done that, done that, and they bring the, the knowledge, uh, but equally they're, they're finding a way of remaining active in their sport, not actually playing it or, or doing it. Uh, and, it's, and that, I think, is what comes across particularly with Timmy, that it's just so, so natural, so infectious. He, he, he draws you in. That's the best way I can describe it. Keena, this piece also stuck out to you. Yeah, yeah. I covered basketball for many years when the Super League was really back in the days when it was really at its height. And like he coached, like that's what George is right. Like not only do we get the boom shakalaka and all the great phrases and just that like American style enthusiasm for the game. Um, and obviously he watched it and seen it in America a lot. But, you know, he was a brilliant player. Like he captained Ireland. He played over 100 times Ireland. But he, and he also managed, uh, well, he played with Blue Demons, but then he managed Garvey's Chile and had them to become a really big, big club. So, like, he has all the expertise. I think that's what you want, isn't it, in a, in a great commentator, is that, that they wear their knowledge lightly, um, you know, um, that they slip it in while they keep up that enthusiasm. And also, he's never afraid to say, he's never afraid to, to say the hard thing as well, like, which I really like about him. He doesn't hold back. Um, but it, and also, what's really interesting about him, 
I we used to laugh if I met him on, on the way into a match I'd, I'd always end up late because he'd just end up chatting sport with them you know he's a sports enthusiast but you know he's been very influential in the GA circles as well and mm. I was interested like I knew, I knew he'd been sick and that he, he'd been through treatment and everything but I didn't realise like he, he had helped before um, he had been involved with actually I knew he was involved with Dave Power with Wexford football and I knew he was involved with St. Finbars in Cork but I didn't realise actually that like He's lived in that loan for years and he's actually working, he's coaching with St. Bridges, the local GA club. And that's just telling me like, he'll, and of course, if he can, whatever he can possibly, there'll be a game of golf fitted in. And I'd say there, even during chemo, it says here, if he got out for, for a hose and he did as much. He's just an incredibly positive, passionate person about sport. He's just the kind of person you love to meet in sport. Yeah, it definitely comes across. I think too, I was just going to sum it up, uh, or sum him up rather, in the quote that, that is at the end of that article. He says, my, my career, I played in front of 5,000 people at the parochial hall, and I played there in front of about five people. But both times I played to win to be the best it could be. And that is what sport can do, be the best it can be. I think that's, that's a, a great quote and, and su sums up to me and yeah. sums up all the great co-commentators, like uh, as in Eugene Coakley, I was mentioning in rowing, like Ray Hout and Ronnie Whelan and Jim Beglin and football. You know, they're, they're bringing... They're bringing the game to you in a way that uh, that, that that shines and just just illuminates the broadcast. For sure, it's it's a really good piece. It's worth your time. It's on page sixty six of the Irish Mail on Sunday. At Cleaner, we were just mentioning there that there's plenty of Olympics coverage. Where do you want to go next with it? Well, there's loads of us. Um, I, I really liked. Uh, th there's a very good piece with. Um, Kurt Walker, the boxer by our Kurt Walker with the boxer is Sean McGoldrick in the Sunday World, and it's a really nice piece as well. Um, he, if if the Olympics had happened last year, uh, apart from the qualification issues, he probably wouldn't have gone because he his first child was born in May 2020, and she was so premature that she was 25 ounces and she spent three, that's one but we're not even at one and a half pounds i think um and was desperately desperately sick and uh they they spent she spent three months in the hospital um but has come through now as a year old and healthy but like all of that could have happened to him right before the olympics and his olympics would have been gone so he's come out the other side of that now and he's part of a boxing team which again there are there is hope of medals in it obviously and particularly on the women's side um three really good female boxers but you know it's just it is interesting that you know you you sometimes just hear bad news all the time about irish boxing but so much there is a lot of work i think being done certainly at the elite level um and it's just the great thing about the olympics over the next few weeks is all the human interest stories Do you know we'll identify with those and i was really interested this week um uh was it this week or last week I see Sonia Sullivan was on the cover of one of the the, the Indus uh, magazine yesterday. That's the sport magazine. But Billy Dard is the, the sevens rugby coach. I asked him, like, do you know the way all your kids, these few, the next few weeks, they'll be watching it or seeing it, even if it's, you know, the wrong time of day. Um, you know, they'll be out in the gardens, you know, pretending to be whatever it is that they see on TV. And I asked Billy Dardis what was his, like, what to, who did he want to be when he was little, if he, if he watched the Olympics, because rugby wasn't in the Olympics at the time. And he said, Sonia Sullivan, isn't that interesting? Mm. She has inspired so many people in so many sports. He remembered her winning silver. And he said, that's his first memory of the Olympics and thinking, oh, wow, that's amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing to do that? Not even in his sport. And we come across that time and time again with men and women in Ireland um, who are elite athletes. So many of them were inspired by Sonia Sullivan because she took on the world and she showed that anybody could do it. She, you know, she was, she was just so good at what she did. You know, she inspired so many people. That's, I think that's really interesting, and that's a really interesting. Nice read that. 
I was just going to make the point there as you, as you speak, Cleena. It's interesting that Dara Maloney's in the mail on Sunday favorite Olympic moment was Sonia's silver medal in Brisbane. So there you are. That's That kind of underlines what you were saying. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think yeah. so. She had an extraordinary influence and, it's still, and it continues to this day. But um, that's a good piece, that John McGoldrick piece. But they're everywhere. I mean, even mm. the Sunday Business Post their magazine um, is is uh, is an Olympic magazine. Nadia Powers on the front of it, and I love the piece today. Um, and it's not in the sports pages at all, on. And it is with Nicole Turner, one of our top Paralympic swimmers. Um, and it is a fantastic read. It's just a brilliant read. Um, Emily Hurricane wrote it, and um, particularly because if you know her back, we appear to have lost Kleena once again. Uh, the Nicole Turner piece in. The Life magazine in the Sunday Independent, absolutely worth your time. Uh, we are almost out of time. We've had a lot to fit in over the last little while. There's just a couple of other things you wanted to touch on. Uh, I mean, there's so much good Olympic stuff. But one of the, the best pieces really this morning is in the Sunday Independent. Cahill Dennehy in conversation with uh, Stephen Scullion from Belfast. I find it really easy to run five minute miles, but sometimes I struggle with life. He's going to be going in the marathon in Tokyo. It looked like something that was almost certainly not going to happen uh, even just a, a few months ago. Even if you go back a few years, it looked like it wasn't going to happen for him. He's got a remarkable backstory. He tells the story of uh, being uh, kind of a, a boy wonder, a, a kid who was as a 14-year-old running in the 1500 and the 800. Uh, shortly before running a 1500 on the same day as the 800, he's approached by someone close to him. He told me that if I didn't win, he'd effing beat me, he recalls with an awkward laugh. I'm not really laughing. I cried my eyes out that day because I was so scared not to win. He kind of touches on that as the piece goes on about the really tough love he got as a young athlete and how that might have negatively impacted him in life. He says, I find it really easy to run five-minute miles. I ran 26.2 of them in rain, freezing cold and wind, and some people can't run 400 metres at that pace, but sometimes I struggle with life. It's a, it's a, a, a tough read at times, uh, George. I, I'm not sure that this also stick out to you, this guy. You, you immediately root for him. You did. Well, you, you, you pointed me in the direction of it because I, might, I mightn't have got there uh, so preoccupied with the England stuff and, and the Olympic stuff. Uh, and it's, it's in, on page 14 and 15 of the, uh, the sports section of the Sunday Independent. And when I started, I, I found it very, very tough, a very tough read because it's so raw and honest. And the stuff that he's gone through, and the the, the business about he waking up after party, uh, sloshed and, and trying to get get out of this gated community and climbing over the fence and ripping himself to bits on the razor wire at the top of the fence. I mean, it's a waking up on the bed and finding bloodstains all over the bed from the where his back had been cut when he out of his out of his head had gone over this fence that he should have gone over. It's it's just a, a very very raw story and an insight into how how much suffering there can be in conquering what it is you've got to conquer to get yourself to that level. And it's very well done by Carl Denny. Yeah. It's, a, it's one of those things that you, I, do I really want to read this? But yet you, you keep going to the end because the story is so strong. It, it really is and a, a fantastic piece of writing. Yeah, it, it really is, George. And, and like even kind of talking about finishing second in the Dublin Marathon behind somebody who had just returned from a two-year doping ban, Otmein El Goumri, the, the Moroccan. Uh, he, he really thinks that the, 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 the sport is, is filthy and it pisses it off and it's, it pisses him off and it's getting worse, he says. And also, he says, you'd struggle to find a professional at the elite level who doesn't have a side of something, who doesn't have a few issues going on and touches to at Tiger Woods. It's a brilliant piece, page 1415 in the Sunday Independent. Uh, we have lost Kleena Foley, but we thank her for her contributions this afternoon. George Hamilton, a pleasure as ever. Thanks a million for being with us. Thank you. Sunday Sports Pages. It'll be podcasted very shortly. Quick break. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball.